0: Hello and Happy New Year everyone. This is Jeannie Poole, Editor-in-Chief of HeartRhythm02, and welcome to the January 2024 podcast. We have an interesting lineup of articles to discuss, starting with my State of the Journal report. HR02 is doing really well, and we received an impact factor of 1.9, which placed us at 18th amongst 69 new Elsevier cardiovascular journals. Journals that publish only review papers or are able to publish a significant number of guideline and consensus documents tend to do well in terms of impact factor. Our goal at HRO2 is to publish impactful original articles in addition to other types of submissions. This includes a new series of articles focusing on the early contributions to our field from our international colleagues. In this issue, we publish in our first paper titled Argentina's Most Important Contributions in the Field of Electrophysiology, by doctors Marcelo Elizari and Luis Aguinaga, who described the foundational EP concepts led by such investigators as Dr. Mauricio Rosenbaum, who was the first to identify that the conduction system is trifascicular and not bicuspidal as previously thought, and that is just one of the many important contributions from the Argentina EP group. Please also catch the Heart Rhythm Society TV interview of Dr. Aguinaga. The next paper is the first original research article in this issue, and is titled. Utility of a Guiding Catheter for Conduction System Pacing, an Early Multi-Center Experience by Dr. Jan Neputer and colleagues. This paper represents the acute results of a new biotronic guiding catheter to be used for conduction system pacing. The lead used is a retractable screw in Biotronic Solia S lead. The name of the study is the Biomaster Selectra 3D study, which was a prospective international non-randomized design with a primary endpoint of freedom from catheter related serious adverse device effects within one week of lead implantation. All pacemakers in this study were the Biotronic and Nitra family of pacemakers and all patients were enrolled into the Biotronic Home Monitoring Remote Follow Up System. The authors enrolled one hundred and fifty seven patients who were planned for conduction system pacing, including both HIS bundle pacing as well as left bundle branch area pacing. The choice of which approach was determined by investigator preference. In the earlier years of the trial, left bundle branch area pacing was not yet being used, as in the later years of the trial. Successful His bundle pacing, left bundle branch area pacing, were defined based upon the ERA Clinical Consensus Statement on Conduction System Pacing, published in 2023. The primary endpoint was freedom from serious adverse device effects related to the selector of 3D catheter within one week of lead implantation. Of the 157 patients enrolled, conduction system pacing was successful in 147, or 93.6% of the total group. It is noted that at sites who were using both his bundle pacing and left bundle branch area pacing, the successful implant rate was 99%. A switch from his bundle pacing to left bundle branch area pacing occurred in 37.8% of all cases in which his bundle pacing was initially attempted. The final position was the left bundle branch area in 55.8% and the his bundle in 44.2%. In terms of the primary endpoint, the authors did not identify any serious adverse device-related events. That is, the SADE-free rate related to the Selector 3D catheter at 7 days was 100%. The authors report on the total procedural and fluoroscopic time. They note that on average successful his bundle pacing and direct left bundle branch area pacing implantations lasted about 50 minutes with a fluoroscopic time of about 6 minutes. In successful conduction system pacing implants, the median number of lead positioning attempts was 2 for both his bundle pacing as well as left bundle branch area pacing. In unsuccessful implants, the median number of lead positioning attempts was 6. Hear restorations were compared between baseline and post-implant in those without a baseline bundle branch block, the mean cure restoration increased from 106 milliseconds to 122 milliseconds. In patients with a bundle branch block, the mean cure restoration decreased from 151 milliseconds to 137 milliseconds. In conclusion, the authors conclude that the Selector 3D catheter is a valuable tool for his bundle pacing and left bundle branch area pacing implantations using stylet-driven pacemaker leads. And in this study, high success rates were achieved with this pacing system for conduction system pacing. The next paper is titled, Leadless Pacemaker Tying Damage and Fracture, Novel Complications of a Novel Device Fixation Mechanism, by Dr. Eric McLean and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the fracture potential of the nitinol fixation methods for the Medtronic Micra leadless pacemaker. The MOD database was queried to identify cases of tying fracture and damage. A total of 4,241 reports were identified, which included 2,104 micro VR, and the remainder were the micro AV. 230 reports met the search conditions, and after author scrutiny, 7 tined fractures and 19 tined damages were found. Amongst the fractures, 5 of the 7, or 71%, were in the micro AV. Tined damage was fairly equivalent between the two types of pacemakers, and 53% associated with the micro VR model, and 47% with the micro AV model. The authors also identified when the tine fractures occurred. Two of the seven cases were found during the implant procedure, whereas two were identified a week or more post-implant. The remaining three cases were not specified as to the timing of discovery in the database. Five of the seven tine fracture cases either presented as symptoms or signs, one cardiac arrest and one bradycardia, or as a change in pacing parameters. Regarding tying damage, the majority, or 84%, were identified during the procedure. None of the cases, or 47%, presented either with symptoms or signs, or as a change in pacing parameters. Of the symptoms and signs group, tamponade with hypotension occurred in one patient, complete AV block in another, and severe pain in a third. All of these were identified during the procedure. Another event was migration of the device to a femoral vein branch, which was discovered two weeks post implant. The authors note in their conclusion that the fixation based mechanism of the microleadless pacemaker can develop both fracture and damage. Importantly, these occurrences may not present with signs or symptoms, but only at follow up. The authors suggest that future bench testing or clinical studies are needed to understand better the rate, clinical impact, and mechanism of such failures and the role of surveillance. The title of the next paper is Bipolar Ablation Involving Coronary Venous System, or Refractory Left Ventricular Summit Arrhythmias, by Dr. Andres Enriquez and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to investigate the outcomes of bipolar ablation performed between the coronary venous system and adjacent endocardial left ventricular outflow tract or right ventricular outflow tract. This is a multi-center retrospective series inclusive of patients from eight international centers between 2013 and 2023. Patients were included if they met the following definitions. One, age equal to or greater than 18 years. Two, PVC or VT with earliest local activation in the great cardiac vein or the anterior interventricular vein. And three, failed unipolar ablation from the endocardium. Patients were excluded if mapping or ablation catheters could not be advanced, the great cardiac vein, or the AIB. Or two, ablation within the great cardiac vein, or AIV, was deemed unsafe due to proximity to an epicardial coronary artery, as determined by interprocedural angiography. For the procedure, ablation was started with powers of 10 to 20 watts and up-titrated to achieve an impedance drop of at least 10%. The primary target for ablation was the site of earliest bipolar activation, ideally exhibiting a QS unipolar electrogram and good pacemap with greater than 95% match. Angiography was performed in all cases to confirm a safe distance of equal to a greater than 5 millimeters of the catheter from the major coronary arteries. Findings in the study are, one, 20 patients had a bipolar ablation attempt after failed unipolar ablation. Two, bipolar ablation was delivered with a maximum power of thirty plus or minus 8 watts and a total duration of 238 plus or minus 217 seconds. Three, acute PVC-BT elimination was achieved in all patients four, no procedural related complications occurred. And five, over a follow-up of thirty plus or minus twenty four months, the freedom from arrhythmia recurrence was eighty five percent. One recurrence was in the VT group and two were in the PVC group. Overall PVC burden was reduced from twenty two percent to four percent. I also prefer the reader to figure number one that shows the PVC morphologies for all twenty patients. The authors conclude that in cases of LV summit, PBC and BT ablation that is refractory to unipolar ablation. bipolar ablation can be performed between the great cardiac vein and the AIV at the opposite of the endocardial sites in the LVOT or RVOT. Ablation is effective and safe if careful titration of power and interprocedural angiography are performed to ensure a safe distance from the coronary arteries. The title of the next paper is Evaluation of Organized Atrial Arrhythmias After Cryptogenic Stroke by Dr. Naga, Venkata, and colleagues. This paper addresses the important topic of cryptogenic stroke and identification of possible atrial fibrillation using ECG monitoring. The authors ask an important question. What is the burden of types of atrial arrhythmias, that is, are they organized or not organized, in this patient population? The purpose of this study was to assess the incidence and risk factors for organized atrial arrhythmias in patients with cryptogenic stroke. To address this question, the authors identified all patients with cryptogenic stroke who underwent an implantable cardiac monitor implantation between 2014 and 2020 at any of the three Philadelphia-based Penn Medicine hospitals. Patients with known prior atrial arrhythmies were excluded from the analysis. All ICM transmissions were categorized as AF, atrial tachycardia, or bradycardia, and were independently reviewed. Data was collected, including baseline demographics and covariates, and whether or not the patient was on any antiplatelet or oral anticoagulation at the time of the implant. Echo data were evaluated for chamber size, specifically the left atrial dimension. All patients had the Medtronic Reveal Link implanted. In this device, AF must last at least two minutes to be identified as an episode of AF per its algorithm. Additionally, all tachycardias have to be equal to or greater than 150 beats per minute to be recorded. Both atrial fibrillation and organized atrial arrhythmias were identified, though for the organized arrhythmia episodes, they had to have been at least 30 seconds of duration or greater to be clinically significant. In terms of the results, a total of 195 patients with implantable monitors were included of whom the mean age of 66 years, while half were women and the mean CHATS VAST score was 4.6. The follow-up was 18.9 plus and minus 11.2 months. Of the total cohort, 66 patients, or 34%, were found to have at least one atrial arrhythmia. 23% of the total cohort were found to have at least one organized atrial arrhythmia. Amongst those patients, 38% also had at least one episode of atrial fibrillation detected. A total of 10.7% of the 195 patients had only atrial fibrillation, making the total with detected atrial fibrillation 19.5% in this cohort of patients. Female sex was associated with a higher likelihood of having less organized atrial arrhythmias. Additional univariate significant associations included a history of heart failure, which had three times the risk. When adjusted for age and race, heart failure was no longer significant. Other common comorbidities, such as diabetes and chronic kidney disease, were not associated with the development of an organized atrial arrhythmia or atrial fibrillation. Following multivariate analysis, the only independent marker of having an atrial organized tachyarrhythmia detected was left atrial enlargement. In summary, the yield for finding any atrial arrhythmia was 34% over the follow-up of 18 months. Interestingly, 23% of the total group had at least one organized arrhythmia and 19.5% had at least one episode of atrial fibrillation. These findings are important. They show a high rate of organized atrial tachyarrhythmias identified in cryptogenic stroke patients. The stroke risk for patients who do not have atrial fibrillation detected but do have an organized atrial arrhythmia detected is less well characterized compared to patients with atrial fibrillation. The title of the next paper is Rationale and Design of the PACE, HEFPEF trial, physiologic accelerated pacing as a holistic treatment of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction by Dr. Nicole Hobble and colleagues. This paper reports on the design for the PACE HEFPEF trial. Dan Lustgard from the University of Vermont is the principal investigator. In this investigator initiated study, the investigators seek to determine the effects of continued resting heart rate elevation with and without superimposed nocturnal pacing in HEFPEF patients. Who do not have a standard indication for pacing. The design of the trial is prospective, patient-blinded, and multiple crossover. The outcome measures are to assess the impact of accelerated pacing on one, quality of life, two, physical activity, three, N-terminal pro-BNP, and four, echocardiographic measures of cardiac structure and function. The background supportive of this trial comes from the observation that heart rate lowering in HEPP is disadvantageous. The authors have previously reported that in patients with and without half-path, artificially increasing the heart rate with atrial pacing to 125 beats per minute, in anesthetized patients, acutely lowered left atrial pressures and LDN diastolic pressure, with effect being more pronounced in the patients with half-path. Furthermore, the authors presented their results last year from the MyPACE study. In this study, pacemaker patients with physiologic pacing lead or pace duration of 150 milliseconds were randomized either to a personalized accelerated lower rate setting, 75 beats per minute, or to remain at the nominal lower heart rate setting of 60 beats per minute. Patients with the higher pacing rates did better with improvements in quality of life, physical activity, NT, PRO, BNP levels, and device detected atrial fibrillation. For this study, the pace HAFPEF trial, strict criteria for defining hef are used. One, the patient must have one or more signs and at least one symptom of heart failure. Two, a non-dilated left ventricle with a normal left ventricular ejection fraction. Three, controlled blood pressure for at least 30 days prior to enrollment. And four, a history of heart failure hospitalization within the prior 12 months or an elevated NT-proBNP of equal to or greater than 400 picograms per milliliter. 20 patients have been enrolled into the study. All patients received a dual-chamber Medtronic Azure S pacemaker generator with a Medtronic 3830 lead targeting the Hiss bundle and a Medtronic 3830 lead targeting the Bachmann bundle. The study has two phases. The first phase evaluates the effects of lower heart rate elevation on symptoms and function. Patients are randomly assigned in a crossover design to one-month intervals looking at atrial pacing at the individualized heart rate, Dual chamber pacing at the individualized heart rate or three rate adaptive pacing only with the atrial pacing rate 40. Phase two then incorporates nocturnal pacing in a crossover randomization. The author summarized stating that the hypothesis of the current study is that a personalized lower heart rate elevation employing physiologic conduction system pacing in patients with HEPPEP will decrease left atrial and left ventricular filling pressures. Well, we definitely look forward to the results of this very innovative study. Up next is a wonderful review paper that focuses on the role of advanced imaging modalities such as CMR or PET scanning. The title of the paper is Sarcoid Heart Disease and Imaging by Drs. Jianlian Tan, Greg Seppel, and Saman Nazarian. I really hope that you all will take a look at this. In this paper, the authors provide a figure that's an algorithm outlining a general approach for evaluation and management of cardiac sarcoid using cardiac imaging. The office's key messages are as follows. First, cardiac sarcoidosis can mimic any cardiomyopathy, partly due to the various clinical manifestations of the disease and depending upon the location and extent of granuloma infiltration within the heart. Second, multiple diagnostic criteria have been proposed for diagnosing and treating cardiac sarcoid early. And third, current evidence shows that CMR and PET-CT imaging have pivotal roles in the diagnosis, management, and prognostication of cardiac sarcoid. The next paper is a Bell's Corner case presentation. and comes from authors in Portugal. The first author is Dr. Rita Reis santos The title of the paper is Sinus Rhythm Restoration After Atrial Fibrillation Plus Dual-Loop Biatrial Flutter Catheter Oblution. Then finally, the last two articles are a letter to the editor and authors rebuttal for the previously published paper titled RITACO Researcher's Repolarization Parameters and Ventricular Arrhythmias in Takotsubo Syndrome, a Substudy from the RITACO National Registry by Dr. Balzerani et al. So this sums up the January 2024 issue. I hope you will continue to listen to these podcasts, read the Heart Rhythm O2 journal papers, and as always, we welcome your submissions for possible publication. Talk to you all next month.